Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to continue on in our series. We've been looking at emotional and relational health, and we're trying to get more into We're We're, we're uh, beginning to talk about relational health. Last week, we talked about marriage, and uh, we may touch on that a little bit this week, but really what I want to talk about is this tension we see in Scripture when it comes to relationships. Uh, you, you, you really see this, the, this uh, almost... Uh, conflicting commands at times in Scripture. Let me read a couple to you, that, a couple that come to mind for me. Matthew 5, verse 38 through 41. You have heard it said, this is Jesus speaking, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them your other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And so that's that's a pretty uh, stout command there that Jesus gives us. Then we see in 2 Thessalonians verse 3, it says this. Now this is Paul's instruction. This is Paul speaking his instructions to the church in Thessalonica. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. So on the one hand, Jesus says, if someone asks you for something, give it to them. Give them more than they ask for. And on the other hand, Paul's saying, if the guy doesn't work, he doesn't get to eat. So which route do we take with benevolence? Which one is the scriptural objective? Are Paul and Jesus in disagreement? Well, of course, we know that's not true. So what what are the two sides to this thing? There are scriptures that seem to be in tension with one another. How do we we resolve this? Here's a couple of others. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 37. uh, Do not judge or you will not... Do not judge or... and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Then jump down to verse 41. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brothers, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First you take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then we see in Romans 16, verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned from them. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. So on the one hand, Jesus tells us not to judge And on the other hand, matter of fact, in the King James Version, Paul's even stronger the way they they translate it. He says, mark those who cause division. Now, if I'm not supposed to judge people, how am I to mark those who cause division? And are Jesus and Paul in disagreement with one another? 
So how do we reconcile these, these verses? They're both the, the written word of God. They're both instructive to us on how, do we're behave, how we are to behave, how we're to walk. So how do we reconcile these two things? And that's what we want to look at this morning. The fact is that there are two sides to the Christian life. On the one hand, as a believer, I need to... Uh, I need to be concerned with my own personal development and I need to die to my own flesh. I need to absorb offenses. I need to forgive uh, offenses from other people. I need to die to myself. I need to live in sacrificial love. That's my own personal development. But there's another side to this thing and that is when we operate in leadership and we have responsibility for others... All of a sudden, it's no longer, I'm just concerned with my own personal development, that I'm charged with the development of others. Now I'm not absorbing the weaknesses and the offenses. I'm holding people accountable for their weaknesses and their offenses. So there's a difference between the responsibility of my own personal growth and me being responsible for the growth of other people. This is the difference between leadership, I mean, uh, discipleship, personal devotion, and leadership, where I, uh, where I embrace the responsibility to develop others. It's like the difference between, uh, as, a, as somebody under authority, I need to, uh, you know, in response, a teenager, let's pre preach to the teenagers again this week. As a teenager, you need to respond correctly to your parents. And there are times where their weaknesses are going to show. Don't say amen. There are, especially you, Nathaniel. There are times where people's weaknesses will be displayed in their parent, parenting. And we need to absorb those and honor them. And as parents, we need to absorb the weaknesses of our children to some extent. But I also need to hold them accountable for them so that they can grow up. These two things are not in opposition from one another. And, but it does demand that we learn to live in the tension of these two things. And where these two things find their convergence is in the subject that we call boundaries. Now some of you might say, Pastor, come on, boundaries? That's psychobabble. That isn't in the Bible. Well, it, I, not the word in a psychological or relational sense. We don't see that word in the Bible. We don't see the word trinity. But the idea is present in the scripture. And so is the idea of boundaries. And so we need to learn to have healthy boundaries. Now, it's interesting in the Old Testament, we see this, this concept of boundary markers or even boundary stones throughout the Old Testament. And what it was, it was these, these markers or these stones. And a lot of times they would have carvings in them. And they were stones that were placed to... Uh, mark out the property rights of people. And so they would mark the boundary lines between property owners. And what it would do, it would define who was responsible for and had the rights to that land. It's the same thing relational boundaries do for us. Relational boundaries will determine or define who has responsibility for that area and who has the rights to that area. 
Scripture was very clear. You don't remove an ancient boundary marker. Matter of fact, you'd come under the judgment of God if you began to mess with boundary lines because boundary lines were a part of someone's inheritance and you were robbing them of their inheritance and of what they, what they were given by God to that family. And so boundary markers were very important. Well, relational boundary markers are very similar. We need to have healthy boundary lines. So what are relational boundary lines? Relational boundary lines, you can put it this way, are the limitations you place on other people in their access to you and your resources. Let me say it again. It's the limitation to your, you and your resources that you place upon other people. There's a limit on to how much of you you can give to other people. Now that might mess with your theological concept. I know the way I was raised, I was, the, the, the circles that I was discipled in didn't emphasize a lot of leadership development, okay? It wasn't about us uh, holding other people accountable. It was about us absorbing the failures of other people. And that makes for some very mature that uh, uh, loving, self-sacrificing people, if they will take that material in, if they will uh, come under that word and allow it to work in their life. But what happens over time, those people may be very mature in and of themselves, but they're not able to produce healthy environments. When your absorption of somebody else's character flaws begins to cost the wider group, it's no longer godly to absorb their failures. That is not self-denial, that is enabling. Self-denial was never intended to be a cover for somebody else's dysfunction. Let me say it again. Your self-denial, your willingness to put up with the weakness of others was never meant to be a cover for someone else to remain in the flesh. Now, I can say that, and I can say that from a selfish perspective, or I can say that from a very loving perspective. We need to say it from a very loving perspective. What I mean by that is, I need to live from that perspective for the benefit of others. It's not healthy for someone else if I am making room for things that are destroying their life. If I am covering for their dysfunction, that's not healthy. And I can say that out of love. I can also say that out of selfishness. That I'm really not concerned about how it's affecting them. I just don't want to put up with their stuff. That's not, I'm not talking about doing things from a selfish perspective. I am talking about living from a selfless, loving perspective. And there is a place in God to hold other people accountable for their stuff. And we need to know when to do both. And so we live in this tension in Scripture. Where it says, uh, Galatians chapter 6, You who are spiritual, restore people who are stuck in sin. Uh, Romans 16, we just read it. He says it this way, You who are spiritual, bear the failings of the weak. You could even go so far as saying, The measure of your spirituality is how much of the weakness of others you can bear. How much of a load of, how much of other people's load can you carry 
It's not the guy who can climb the mountain on his own. It's the guy that can climb the mountain carrying someone else's stuff. That's a measure of spirituality. And there's truth to that. There's, that is a very real facet of the Christian life. We need to be able to bear the failings of the weak. But we must be careful that our bearing the failings of the weak doesn't become a form of enabling of people to stay weak. And so there's this tension between discipleship and leadership that we need to maintain. And it's not a matter of one contradicting the other because they find their convergence in a heart of love. There's an old saying, X marks the spot. If you, you know, of course, it's a reference to the old, the old treasure maps. I don't know if there ever was really a treasure map with an X on it, but that X was supposed to mark where the treasure is. And there's a very real sense in that theologically, X does mark the spot where, where there are seemingly contradictory truths where they converge, there's treasures there. If you can find where those things converge and where, where the sweet spot is that you can live within the tension of two corresponding truths or even almost seemingly contrasting truths, there's tremendous insight and treasure there. And boundaries is one of those truths. We need to have healthy boundaries. You need to limit the access that you give people to you and your resources because God has allocated you what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, a metron, or I believe it's the NAS, translates that a field. You have responsibility for your field. Now Paul is talking about, in that regard, in that context, he's talking about a spiritual gifting or a space in the spirit that you have been delegated authority over and that, for which you will give an accountability to God. There are metrons that are relational. There are metrons that are, are forms of gifting. And we have to steward those things in our life. Paul talks about those metrons growing. God will give you more if you steward what you have well. And we need to learn to steward the relational space in our life. Even though we see, hear Jesus saying things like, turn the other cheek... And it seems to imply that you just give people unlimited access to your life. We see something different reflected in Jesus' life. Hebrews tells us that the word that God spoke by his son, not just what Jesus said, but what Jesus did is a message to us. And we can see in Jesus' own life, there were times where he would walk away from human need and get alone with the Father. He didn't give unlimited access to his life. Matter of fact, there were layers of access. There, were, there was the 400 that, Jesus, uh, that, that were uh, around when Jesus was ascended. There were the 70 he sent out. There were the 12 he traveled with. There was the three that he would take with him on the, you know, uh, James, John, and Peter. There was a, a proximity that these three enjoyed that the 12 didn't. And arguably... John, I could make an argument that John was the closest to Jesus. Not all of them had the same access to Jesus' heart. God limits access to his heart based upon our response to him. Jesus taught parables. 
And the reason he tells us he taught on parables is so that people wouldn't understand what he was saying. And then he would pull the disciples aside later and he would explain to them what he said. And he said, I'm going to tell you, but I won't tell others. That was a form of access. It was a, it was a boundary line to the revelation that Jesus carried. Jesus said, I won't share my pearls with swine. I'm not going to share my truth with people that have no value system to really appreciate them and steward them well. We have to steward our resources. We have to steward ourselves. And we can't give people unlimited access to us. We have to set boundaries. Our former pastor uh, Pastor Kelly, my predecessor, he resigned the church about 18 years ago. But his wife was his secretary for many years, and she had this phrase. It, it was a little abrasive, a little bit, but you, you had to know Bev. She, Bev wasn't abrasive. When it came out of her, it didn't sound that way. But she would say, listen, a uh, poor planning on your part doesn't mean it's an emergency on my part. Because people would come to her, I need this now, I forgot. Well, poor planning on your part doesn't mean an emergency on my part. That was a boundary line. And that was healthy. Here's the danger. Desperate people don't care about your boundaries. Desperate people do not care about your needs. You know, they say a drowning person, you don't try to rescue a drowning person until they're just about to die. You know why? Because it's at that point that they lack the strength to drown you in their attempt to save themselves. And the same is true emotionally. That People that are drowning in a crisis in their life, they are not going to care about your boundaries. They're not going to care about your needs. So you better. Because if you don't care for yourself, you're not going to be able to help them. A dead person, a drowned person cannot help a drowning person. So we have to learn to tend our own garden. Jesus did that. He would give certain people levels of access. And even with John and the three and the 12 and the 70, there were times he would leave them and he would pull away to have time with the Father because his priority was his relationship with the Father. And that demanded that he would have to say no to human need. There's never a lack of human need. I remember when I was in Bible school, we had a guy come and speak and, and he, would, he had an inner city church in New York City and uh, developed this Sunday school that was serving 10,000 children a weekend. And he said this, the need is the call. You don't need to pray about things. The need is the call. And I remember even then thinking, ah, that doesn't compute. The need is not the call because there's no lack of need. That guy ended up losing his marriage and his health and, and, uh, because he gave himself, in my estimation, in an unhealthy way to the need. And he didn't have anything left over to give his family. The need is not the call. We need to be led by the Spirit in, in meeting those needs. Now, let me get, safeguard that. If you never feel called to meet needs, you have a boundary issue. Your boundaries are too big, okay? So I'm not talking about boundaries. Boundaries will protect you from the dysfunction of other people, but they're not meant to be a cover for your own dysfunction, okay? It's, boundaries are not meant to be code word for uh, permission to be selfish. But they do have to protect us 
and the resources that we have. In a very real sense, again, the Old Testament, the boundary markers. The boundary markers in the Old Testament would, would uh, mark the boundary lines between two properties. And so it would, it would define who is responsible to weed the garden and who has rights to the produce of the garden. Our boundaries define both rights and responsibilities. I have responsibility to take care of my own garden because I don't have anything to feed others unless I'm tending to my garden. And if I remove the boundary lines and just let people plunder my garden, there is a shelf life on that type of behavior. There comes a point where I have nothing left to give. And so we need to learn to tend to our own garden. And so we have to learn to live in this tension. I need to learn to absorb. I can't, I can't allow myself to be offended. I need to forgive. I need to put up with the failings of others. I need to bear the weaknesses of others. But that doesn't mean that I don't speak up and hold people accountable. Some of you have been here when we had, uh, we've had Dan Moeller here. And Dan is a tremendous teacher. Tremendous pastoral teacher. I don't know of anybody that preaches a clearer gospel than Dan Moeller. He will preach you happy. Seriously. He'll, you can come in discouraged and he'll just preach. By the time he's done, people are shouting and healings are breaking out. And it's not, it's not even, uh, it's not a gift of healing. He just preaches you into faith to the extent that healings just begin to break out. And it's an amazing thing. Dan is one of the most phenomenal pastoral teachers I've ever heard in my life. And he would also disagree with what I'm saying this morning. Because I've talked with Dan. We, we've sat down and argued about this stuff and I love the guy. He challenges me. But he comes from it comes to it from the perspective of a pastoral teacher. And his whole thrust is you becoming personally all that God's called you to be. Dan doesn't lead an organization. He doesn't pastor a church. He is not leading a group of people and therefore developing culture among a people. He is only concerned about the individual's character. And when you are concerned about developing an individual's character, you're going to tell them, suck it up, buttercup. Just, uh, you know, put up with the, the failings of other people and humble yourself and swallow it. Then a few years after we first had Dan here, we brought Danny Silk in. Anybody remember when Danny Silk was here? And Danny Silk was teaching on boundaries and culture. And I'm thinking, I would love to get Dan and Danny in a room, lock the door and watch through the window and just see them go out, hair flying everywhere. No, I'm sure they would, they would have a deep respect for one another, but there was, there's a point at which they could not come to agreement. Why? Because where Dan was concerned about the individual's character, Danny is pastoring within an apostolic culture and he is concerned with producing healthy culture, not a godly character. Now, those two things are not at odds with each other, but we have to live in tension with one another because a culture demands... See, if you have... If all I preached on was this, if we started putting out bumper stickers, suck it up, buttercup, Heartland Church. If that was our message, 
that you just absorb the failings of the weak and that's all we addressed then we would become an environment that welcomes abuse we would become an environment that people would come in and use and abuse and I would no longer be fulfilling my responsibilities as a pastor of this church it's similar to this as I read the Bible and it says if someone strikes you turn to them the other cheek oh man that would be hard I did. I've, I've been struck one time as a minister. I've been almost struck a number of times. But I've been struck one time by, a, by a, a guy I was discipling. And I didn't even have time to turn the other cheek because the Teen Challenge students descended upon him. I was grateful. So I, I received, fulfilled my duty and they took care of him. But uh, I need to turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus said. I, can't, I don't have wiggle room out of that, okay? I need to turn the other cheek. But as a dad... If someone is abusing one of my children, I'm not called to turn the cheek of my child. I am called to strike the cheek of the perpetrator. I am called to protect my children because I have a different role. So on the one hand, this is my own personal character. I need to humble myself and, and believe God for the grace in that moment to respond correctly. What the other side? This one's better reach, you know. But in leadership, I'm not called to turn the cheek of my children. I'm called to protect them. And we are, we are called to turn the other cheek, but we also, if we're going to create healthy culture, then the other, the other corresponding truth we need to learn is that we don't do that here. You need to understand, we don't slap people when we disagree with them, okay? Now, you are welcome to come back if you can refrain from ever slapping someone again. But if that's the way you argue, you need to find another church. Because we don't slap people when we disagree. That's good pastoring. That produces culture. And both of those realities are true. And we need to learn to live between those, those two realities. The reason I bring this up is because there's many of us that we read the Gospels and we think that we're supposed to simply roll over and not hold other people accountable. And that may make you a very wonderful individual, but it will produce a healthy environment if that's how you exercise leadership. A healthy culture holds one another accountable. We don't allow that type of behavior. And in reality, sometimes our willingness to absorb and turn the other cheek is actually cover for our cowardice because we don't want to confront. And we can confront in love. I'm not talking about confronting because I'm irritated. I'm not talking about, I'm going to tell people don't slap each other and I'm going to slap you because you were slapping people. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about doing it out of love because we really do want the best for someone else. And we need to learn to live in that tension. We need to learn to speak the truth in love. We need to learn to have healthy boundaries. You've got to steward the resources that God has given you. And if you give people unlimited access to your life. Now, I, I, there are people who apply this to politics. Okay, here, here we go. Can you hear the, the, the ice cracking? There are a lot of people that will apply to the political arena and to the corporate group 
the Sermon on the Mount. You'll hear them talk about turn the other cheek. And they say that a nation should turn the other cheek when they're attacked. And that is akin to a father that comes upon their abused child and says, Now, son, as this man is abusing you, I want you to turn your other cheek. He's not exercising his responsibility. There are a lot of people who talk about have removing boundaries and they'll quote the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount is given to the individual believer. But when we have to exercise life together, all of a sudden there's an accountability and there's a, there's a line where your responsibilities and rights begin and my, mine ends. And if we don't establish those, then it becomes a very dysfunctional relationship. And so we need to learn to steward that well. I think one of the problems today is that we don't distinguish between verses that are applied to the individual and those that apply to the corporate group because there is a difference. There are rules of doing life together in a healthy environment. Over here, I need to be a good disciple. But I also need to be part of a group of people that we're all being good disciples together. And part of that responsibility is, I need you to call me on my stuff when, my, when I climb over your fence and start eating your tomatoes. Or you look over and I've got a bunch of weeds in my garden and it's bringing your, your value down of your property. You need to say, hey, Dave, you're not fulfilling your responsibility. Or you got into my garden and you violated my rights. I had a guy that worked for me one time and we, uh, I told him, I said, it was like he was always pushing into my, my area of responsibility. And I told him, I said, man, it's, it's like we have these fence, this fence between our property and we're hanging around the fence and we like to talk and visit and fellowship and and uh, man, I really like being your neighbor. But then one day I get up and I look and I think, wow, that, that's weird. It looks like my, my yard looks smaller. Has that fence been moved? It's like your garden's bigger and my got smaller. And I thought, ah, oh, it just must be me. And I get up the next day and sure enough, the petunias that used to be in my yard are now in your yard and they're on the other side of the fence. I'm like, what's going on? And then one day I get up and I can't even open my back door because the fence is against the door. It's like, you keep eating up my territory. And it was a contentious relationship. And as I called him on his stuff, one day he yelled at me, I quit. And I said, okay. I think it was the second time he did that. I quit. And I said, okay. He came back an hour later. He said, man, I'm really sorry. He said, I said, well, it's too late. You quit. What? No, no, no. No, I, I, I take it back. I said, too late. I already accepted your resignation. Well, I'm going to go talk to the board. I said, you do that. This wasn't here. This was at a different ministry. <laughs> and, uh, and he quit. But it was just a very unhealthy. And, and we had tried to work out this relationship, but he had relational boundaries. You know, to this day, we're friends. But I had to set a boundary line with that guy. Because I couldn't, the, the relationship wasn't going to work with us in those roles. He was unable to, to respect those boundary lines. And so we need to be able to establish boundaries. We need to know how we take care of ourselves, and we need to require other people. See, here's the problem. Let's, if you have a, a box 
and they put a, put a boundary right down the middle. 50% of that box belongs to me and 50% of that box belongs to you. If I am irresponsible and I pull that boundary line way into my property, so now you're responsible for 25% of my yard as well as 100% of yours, and all I have to do is take care of 25% of my yard. That is not good for either one of us. If I'm not fulfilling my responsibility and you are stepping in and rescuing me from that, A, it's unsustainable for you because you're having to take care of your life and part of mine. But furthermore, what you're doing is you're allowing me to atrophy. You're allowing my life to, to shrink and, and lose the ability to exercise dominion over what God has given me. You're not doing me any favors. And a lot of times we think that by enabling people's irresponsible behavior, we're exercising Christian love. I used to tell parents all the time when they'd send their kids to Teen Challenge, I'd say, if the prodigal son's father gave him a MasterCard, he would have never come what caused him to come home was when he ran out of money. He didn't want anything to do with the father. He just wanted the father's money. But it said when he was starving, he went to the, or when he was hungry, he went to the pigs. When he was starving, what did he think of? Dad. And he thought, I'll go back home and maybe dad will let me work for him. He was willing to have a different type of relationship. The father didn't even require that of him. But it was his, the desperation of his situation that drove him to have this epiphany and realize I need a different relationship with my dad than I had before. And so we need to hold people accountable for their own sake. And that is not contrary to the scripture. Jesus called people out all the time on their behavior. And he did it out of concern for them, out of love for them. Now, I am not implying that you just go around and you know, your ministry is, I call people out. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you have the relational equity. Your, your, your yards need to border one another. You know, you don't just drive around town and pull in and say, hey, you need to mow your lawn. I don't know you. I wouldn't recommend that. I wouldn't recommend that in the physical, in the neighborhoods, and I wouldn't recommend that emotionally and relationally. But when you have relationship with people, we need to learn to engage in the, this type of healthy relationship. A lot of times people will make you feel guilty for not rescuing them from their bad decisions. And you can't allow that to happen. You are responsible for your emotions. You are responsible for your behavior. But don't let people manipulate you with guilt over their poor decisions. Now, again, I'm not saying that you close your heart off to people. Thank God there were people, I made some really bad decisions that resulted in me being homeless. And I thank God that there were people who opened wide their heart, but they also held my feet to the fire on my behavior. They didn't just allow me to act any way and allow me access in and out of their life. There was, there was a requirement of how we were going to interact or we weren't going to have relationship. And we need that kind of, those kind of healthy boundaries where we Understand that we there's certain behavior that we're not going to take part in and that we call people on those things and hey, this, this isn't going to work. And that is scriptural. Jesus did it again and again and again. And Paul would call people on things and essentially he would mark them. He'd say, mark them and don't allow them in your midst. Why? Because of their behavior. Now, could they be restored? Yes. 
It's not a matter of forgiveness. Forgiveness, I can forgive someone and I need to forgive someone whether they ever repent or not. I've heard people preach that you don't, you don't forgive unless someone repents. That's rubbish. You forgive, if nothing else, for your own sake and the sake of God, you forgive someone so that you're not keeping that bitterness and keeping a door open to the enemy. We walk in forgiveness. We extend mercy to people. But forgiveness and restoration are two different things. I can forgive someone, but realize I can't have a relationship with them because of the way they, they act. Forgiveness is a matter of my responsibility. Restoration, it's, a, it's a, a joint effort. There's responsibility they have and responsibility that I have. And so we don't just restore people to fellowship without a change in behavior. Because that's not healthy for you and it's not healthy for them. It gives them no motivation to change. And so we need clarity on these things because otherwise the enemy can really begin to mess with our head. Much of what we refer to as demonic oppression is the fruit of unhealthy relationships. Let me say it again. Much of what we refer to as demonic oppression, oh, I'm, I'm being attacked, is simply the fruit of unhealthy relationships. And that doesn't mean the enemy is not involved. It simply defines his entry point. The enemy will enter your life through relationships. The enemy is always looking for some person's back to hijack and come into a church, come into a family, come into a relationship and begin to hijack your life through that individual. But healthy boundaries, healthy relationship, healthy culture is like the immunization against those agents, those people who come in with, with uh, the, and, and I'm not talking about people who are intentional about it. There are people who intentionally come in and try to create strife. There are a lot of people who come in and don't even know it. They're just dysfunctional. They don't have any concept of being responsible for their own stuff. They have a victim mentality and everybody else is responsible and they come in and just vomit all over everybody. But if you have a healthy culture, you can absorb those people but stop the infection of their behavior because they realize real quick, oh, I'm not allowed to act this way here. I'm loved, but I'm held accountable. This place is a healthy place. They, they expect me to deal with myself. And that's what we have to have. God, God longs to raise up healthy houses of faith. Places where hurting, broken people can come. And all of a sudden, they recognize their stuff because, man, this dysfunctional way that I've been interacting with all these other people, I come here, and it is a bold relief. There is a, a great difference between how I operate and they operate. Their life is working, mine isn't, and they won't put up with this kind of behavior. We still love those people, but we draw a line in the sand. Hey, we don't do that here. And we love them more. So this, a healthy culture has its own built-in immunity to that type of behavior. But what a healthy culture demands, and it's what we've been talking about, health, emotional health, we become emotionally healthy in and of ourselves, and part of that is I need to learn to forgive. I need to learn to be spiritual and bear the failings of the weak. I need to be a person that can, can contend with other people's stuff and still love them in the midst of it. 
But then we take that healthy, that emotional health, that relational health, and we take it into a wider group of people. And what is individual character begins to join with other people of solid character, and we create a culture. Culture is the behavior of a group. It's the unspoken rules of how we do relationship. This is how we roll together. And when you have a biblical culture, you have a group of people that have committed themselves to acting biblically. That we're not gonna, we're not gonna compromise, we're not gonna do those things, we're not gonna make excuses for ourselves, but we love you enough that we're not gonna allow you to make excuses for yourself. So that when you come in acting that way, we're gonna call you higher. We're gonna call you into what God's called you to be. And there's gonna be a positive peer pressure because we are going to expect more of you. And there comes a point that you will either grow, grow or go or you'll be asked to leave. Now that's an extreme case. Most people will self-identify in the sense that, you know what, I don't fit in here and I'm not willing to pay the price and they'll be on their way. But there are times where out of discipline, Paul talked about, he said, hey, disfellowship that brother. That was in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he says, now receive him back. Don't let him live in, he's repented. He has uh, lined himself up with the requirements of restoration. So let's restore him. You who are spiritual, restore that one gently, lest you also be tempted, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6. And so a mark of maturity is that we'll receive those back when they have repented. But another mark of maturity is that we love someone enough to say, hey, we don't do that here. And so we, it's not just about us being people of character. And we want to be people of character. And that means we're sacrificial and we'll put up with things. And, and we're not going to get offended. And we're not going to get mad. And we're not going to get into self-pity. That we, got, we have enough in ourselves in God, that we don't need everybody else to behave like we want them to in order for us to have a good day. That we have it on the inside. So that regardless of other people's behavior towards us, we are not into happiness that is based on happenings. We have a joy, a supply that is immune to the external circumstances because we have a relationship with Jesus. And we live out of that. And and therefore, we can become a shining example to others. But if that's where it begins, it needs to begin there. But if that's where it ends, we're not really fulfilling all that God has for us. I believe it was uh, Unshakable Kingdom, uh, uh, Christopher. Unshakable Kingdom, what was the guy's name? Uh, Yes. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones. One of his books, I don't know which book it was. He was a brilliant guy. One of his books, he said something to the effect of this. If the kingdom doesn't start with the individual, it really doesn't start. But if it ends with the individual, it really does end. In other words, what he's saying is it starts with us. I've got to get right with God. And it's not about me holding the group to accountability when I'm not willing to be held accountable myself. It's got to start with me. But in order for the kingdom to really advance, then it's got to get to the place where this kingdom thing multiplies. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman kneads into three lumps of dough. 
and over time, the whole thing rises. It's, it's an interesting thing. Jesus compares the kingdom to the first domesticated organism in history, a yeast cell. Yeast starts as a single cell, but it quickly multiplies, creating what's known as a yeast culture in the dough, and it literally makes room for itself. That's why unleavened bread or bread without yeast is real flat, but when, when yeast is in the dough, what happens is, is these little organisms, now this is gonna gross you out, you may never wanna eat bread again, you know, you leavened bread again, but those, that little organism will begin to eat the sugars and it emits a gas. Uh, you're right. You, I won't, you know, you're, it's, it's passing gas and it's creating these pockets. That's why it rises. And there's little pockets of air throughout it and it raises up. And yeast literally makes room for itself and it will take over the whole lump. What starts as a single cell becomes a culture and totally transforms the host. That is the kingdom of God. So it starts, hey, it's got to start with me. I can't, I can't be saying, well, if, if other people would just live this, we could really, no, it starts with you. But it doesn't end there. You get around some other people, find your tribe and begin get around other people that are sharing your values and love them enough to say, you're better than that and I want to I wanna walk with you while you get higher. And that creates a yeast culture or a culture of the kingdom. And that's where this thing has to go. And culture demands something that character doesn't. Character demands that you deal with you. Culture demands that you not only deal with others, but you call them into account and you call them higher. That we have a code of ethics we live by. And it's best when those, that code of ethics is conscious and not unconscious, where it, it's, it's been articulated, it's been clear, this is how we roll as a people. That code of ethics is, called, is found in the Bible, that we live by the scriptures. And we're gonna love each other enough to call each other to account. And when you start to get in my yard and eat my petunias, or eat my petunias, eat my tomatoes and pick my petunias without my permission, I need to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't realize, but you just stepped over the boundary line. It's like there, there needs to be limits on our life. There's an interesting verse. I, I want to say it's in the final chapter of the book of Daniel. It talks about the wearing down of the saints. That the enemy tries to wear down the saints. And if you don't have healthy boundaries in your life, what's gonna, what happens when you really get a hold of God, when, when God really begins to do something in you and you grab onto this thing, very quickly, other people are going to recognize the transformation and they're going to want some of what you got. And people are going to begin to place a demand on you and that's a good thing. But you have to have limitations on how much you'll give so that you can continue to take care of yourself. If you let everybody else eat all the food in your garden, you got nothing to feed your family. You don't have anything to eat. You've got to deal with you. You say, well, pastor, I don't know. I think we can just be selfish and, or selfless and God can provide. There's people that have homeless ministries that I know think like that. And they'll say, well, if we just keep giving it away. Well, but in reality, they don't live that way. They don't hand out their credit card number to all the homeless people. 
They don't give their bank number to the homeless people. Why? Because there's a limit of access that they have to them. Now, they, they live sacrificially. They go down. They give of themselves, and that's a noble thing. But we have to have boundary lines. And so we need to learn what are those boundaries and allow the work of God to be produced in us. And then as we grow up into him, we find that group of people that we run with and we have healthy culture. It was so clear to me when I heard Danny Silk talking, I thought, oh, I wish Dan Moeller was here. I'm going to talk to Dan about it because I knew Dan would disagree with what Danny was saying. And I knew Danny would disagree with what Dan was saying. And I'm just ornery enough that I'd want to tell him and just see, you know, see him work that out. But the fact is, Dan, his specialty is calling believers higher as individuals. And Danny pastors within this apostolic culture known as Bethel that they're producing a culture that will produce giants. And in order for that thing to be sustainable, in order for it not to implode on itself, people have to be called to account. This morning as we were in transition uh, from worship to the preaching, and uh, I intercepted Rick Arrowwood coming off the platform, and he was sharing with me that his daughter Chelsea, you guys heard them a couple weeks ago, Chelsea had been having this sense for the last number of days and even weeks and uh, was just concerned. She kept having this feeling that the enemy is trying to put hooks in people in little areas and that he's going he's to try to bring people down with these little offenses. And her and her mother were watching the Lord of the Rings. They do these Lord of the Rings marathons. And there was this scene where they had the, the big old ladder. Remember the ladder and the, the hooks go in the side of the wall so they can climb up. And they had all these ladders going up and the enemy was able to infiltrate the stronghold. And she said, that's what I've been seeing. I want you to guard your heart. We need to be the company of the unoffendable. We need to keep our hearts clean. I'm I, I, I'm, I've seen people that tremendous touch of God on their life but they couldn't get over this thing of just they, they had a high standard this demand that people treat me this way or I have the right to be offended and if you draw those types of lines in the sand the enemy will always be bringing people into your proximity that will violate those standards and so we need to be people who are unoffendable we need to be people that will humble ourselves. But we also need to love one another enough to call each other into account. I want to encourage you, man, keep your heart clean. But love enough to invest in other people's lives. And even take risks. Use wisdom. But speak to other people. Don't just cut people off when you feel like, man, this, 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 there's relational friction. Let's work through those things and talk through those things so that we can go to the next level. The deepest relationships you will have are the ones that have made it through conflict. In a very real sense, you could say that intimacy is built upon the ground of conflict. Intimacy with God and man was built upon the conflict of the cross. And as we work through that, we can go deeper. Every married couple knows what I'm talking about. In order to stay married, you've got to work through conflicts. And if you work through that, it takes your relationship deeper and deeper and deeper. 
We've got to work through those things. And God wants us to have healthy boundaries. He wants us to be good disciples who are selfless and humble and can put up with the failings of the weak. But we also love one another enough that we will call each other into account and that we produce a healthy culture and that we, our culture doesn't become a cover for abusive people. That we draw the line in the sand and say, hey, we love you enough that we're not going to allow you to act that way around here because it's not healthy for you and it's sure ain't healthy for us. Amen? Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.